right. Um, this is the Taproot Therapy Podcast. Um, I'm Joel Blackstock, and I'm here with a man that truly needs no inf- introduction. Uh, <laughs> philosopher King, um, <laughs> you know, rock star, uh, uh, published author, uh, world traveler, uh, collector of rare artifacts, uh, esoteric ma- magic specialist. Now, um, so Samuel Blanchett, am I saying that right? Is another is another social worker who reached out to to me, and um, you know we we're both kind of in a similar world, and a ton of uh, the stuff that I've done, I think it, it's just because our website is a little bit more visible. Um, has people see ideas, and they're kind of looking for people in their world. You know, we've talked a little bit about how academic psychology is going in a different direction than clinical practice because um, the market is wanting things that. Um, are not happening in the hospitals by and large, which is not a great place for the profession to be in. And um, so anyway, I have a lot of these conversations like on the phone with people that want to connect and like they're fun and they're interesting and I, I learned a bunch of stuff. And so decided I'm just going to start doing that on the podcast. One, because I'm out of time. All I do is therapy, podcast, and play with my kids uh, and sleep. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, um, Sam was a really interesting, nice guy who reached out and wanted to connect. And um, I'm sure we'll have a, a fascinating conversation. So thank you so much for being here. Can you introduce... Uh, your your actual biography. <laughs> yeah. So aside from my arcanium uh, of you know esoteric skills and my <laughs> yeah. treasure seeking and so forth, I um, should have come up with more like esoteric, more like uh, antiquated titles like alienist, you know things. Okay. Like sure. that. <laughs> like, right. Haberdasher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Farrier. <laughs> All of those, all of those things in the progression of learning how to be a human, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm a, a random human being that reached out to you because I saw that you had um, found a, a really kind of lovely way of integrating some of the modern neurological approaches with some of the cool, um, more philosophical approaches. What, I don't think there's really a distinction there, but just to make yeah, yeah. discrimination between, <laughs> as if we could do that to ourselves. Um, semantic, which semantic distinction only, really. Yes. And so um, I am a uh, master's level clinician with a uh, licensed associate clinician. Um, so I'm working towards my ultimate end goal of whatever that is. Your stage is here because here the C is the terminal license. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm in Arizona. So that, uh, and it is different across all the states. And and my uh, my degree is actually in counseling. So I'm I'm not coming from the social working realm. Oh, okay. Uh, when you said LCS, because here it's ALC, LPC, mm-hmm. and then social is is counselor, and then social worker is LGSW, um, which they just changed to LMSW. Mm-hmm. And then it turns into LICSW, which used to be LCSW. Yeah. <laughs> and our board and its infinite wisdom, you know, moves some well, others around. Absolutely. I really appreciate some of the states, though, that are working on doing kind of interstate compacts as far as that goes. I think that's kind of a really cool. The counselors thing. are so much better at it than the social workers. Um, and it, it's like, and I think there's there's pros and cons to both ones, but overall, it seems like the social workers have like a little bit less self esteem or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know what it is. Um, and the boards seem like we were like during the pandemic of the counseling boards are like getting together and the clinical psychology boards are, are making everything APA is like making everything like so much easier for the license mm-hmm. to practice across straight lines and meet this need in a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. And like our board is making it harder and being like, actually, there's these hoops because we have to make extra sure, um, which I mean, I, there's maybe ways to do it, but it's just like they keep raising the number of ethics bec- mm-hmm. hours because they're like, well, people keep sleeping with their patients, so maybe that they're doing that because they haven't heard it for 
eight hours instead of four. And it's like, <laughs> no, like that. I, I don't I don't think no one I don't think no one told him not to do it is the problem. Introduction to yeah. you want to be a, a mental health professional. <laughs> They're gonna be one, so bored that we are gonna kill the libido of the entire profession. <laughs> no. I mean it's like you 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 need to kind of catch that and the uh, education level mm. and the support level and um, the licensure level, which for some reason it's only we'll just tack on these CEs and 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 then that'll fix these problems retroactively, which it's supposed to be the system's profession. Social social workers are supposed to understand the system as it actually works, not as we mm. wish it did. You know, the, the stereotype is the LPC is kind of in a vacuum being like symptomology, which isn't always true. Right. And the social worker is more like person and environment, food, racism, culture, you know. But for some reason, those are not the ones that uh, that make the loss about so mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's an interesting point that you make about coming into this field, right? And I think to some degree, <laughs> well, it seems that human beings have an interest in how their minds, psyches, souls work, right? How this thing functions. Because we all experience suffering, and so we try to create methods of managing whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's a, such an interesting point about this, like creating a education of so many hours to try and inform you of information. And there's such a, a huge difference between the experience of sitting with somebody in an intensely emotional space and the theoretical constructs around sitting with somebody in emotional space. Mm -hmm. And everybody who doesn't do that seems to want to tell you how to, you know. The, the 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 psychiatrist that has never been in therapy and doesn't practice therapy and the, the right, and head of the insurance board and the state legislature have all these opinions about things they don't do like teach children or, or do counseling yes all of those pieces and i and i think i mean you used a really <laughs> i mean explicit example right this idea of like oh they keep on like engaging in relationships with these uh you know <laughs> people that that's outside of the framework and the boundaries of the like the holding container right Mm -hmm. and at the same time, if you don't know how to work with the energy of human connection, right? Mm -hmm. Like the intensity of that on the levels that are necessary to some degree to like, mm -hmm. you know, be a, and for be multiple like, types of people, you kind of got to be a chameleon. You need to be what they need, not what you, you know, want. Absolutely. And to stay with that um, is interesting. And I think that's a huge part of what our field does we we create mental constructs in order to feel safe when we're journeying into the unknown and i think um you know uh, brain spotting i think that they he, he the author makes a really interesting point about like this quadrillion connections in the human brain mm -hmm. and, and i think that that's lovely to be aware of because uh i think one thing i've noticed as a struggle is uh, they boards and other you know trends try to dictate what is the right way of mm -hmm. doing therapy and oh boy i've i've had so many internal conflicts or like <laughs> well, you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons or the wrong thing for the right reasons you know it's mm -hmm. like like there's some people who use exercise as an avoidance you know so if they're True. processing trauma with brain spotting stop exercising it's not that that's a bad thing to do you know but mm -hmm. it's like so a lot of times i think when you put more control at the top level you're just making pro providers sort of have a different aesthetic about doing what they're doing anyway you know it doesn't actually mm -hmm. change practice that much yeah, if anything it makes it worse yeah mm -hmm. yeah this idea of having to change the language that you express the thing that you're going to be doing naturally anyway well and, and like the whole profession i mean i think that's like why mental health is such an, a weird spot is it's like 
because you see it if you're a social worker and you're working with like grants and things. Yes. But there's all these assumptions baked in to the way the rules are written, mm -hmm. that there's services that exist and connections and, and, and things that have not been around for 30 years. So like mm -hmm. half of it is ticking boxes that are fake just because it used to work this certain way. And and like it's not quite a catch twenty two, but we need a word for that. I mean, and one of the things is it's like psychiatrists know how to do therapy. It's just this assumption because oh, psychiatrists oh, sure. know how to read research about CBT. And it's like, no, we we used to think that because it used to be true because they used to do therapy and they used to be in therapy. And now the vast majority of them are not. But for mm -hmm. some reason, they're the one that calls me, you know, from an insurance panel that I'm no longer in. That says, well, you should be able to treat dissociative identity disorder in three sessions with CBT or drugs are mandated and no more therapy will be paid for. And also brain spotting isn't evidence-based and neither is EMDR and neither is like, you know, some other long list of stuff she wanted me to. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, uh, have you ever done this? Like, I mean, I asked, it'd be the, the like they, I, I, they, like, I left the panel and, and then they were like, well, fine. And now they call me every year and ask me to go back in. I never will, but they're like, hmm. um, you know, like, I don't know. Was it, was it your dream to be the member of a 15 person, you know, fake referral insurance thing that's local to this zip code? Like, I, what are you doing? Why are you telling me how to do therapy? You've never done it. Like, mm. and mm. I don't know. Oh yeah. That, the, that divide is a curious one because on some, in some cases it actually like bears really pleasant fruit, right? Like some of the really cool, um, neurological studies and some of the like neuropsych stuff, um, what I really love about it, in all honesty, is <laughs> it gives credence to a lot of historical and traditional methods of working with people. And now we can just label it with scientific terms and say it's good. An example mm -hmm. that I, I really like. So memory reconsolidation, I think, is so lovely. I, and that's really been encouraging to me, this idea that there is a way that the brain changes things fundamentally permanently. Mm -hmm. right? Love that. I, I, it's very encouraging to me. And in my process of doing therapy, I deeply fell in love with Gestalt therapy at the very beginning of things. Mm. I found the book, Ego, Hunger, and Aggression, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I really love the the depth of this thing. Rich Pearls, it was, a, it was, he, was he was an interesting guy. Yeah, he was. I think a, a lot of, um, you know, we have videos and we use that to interpret a certain total system of philosophical approach, which is, it is what it is and that's what people do. But um, his wife, Laura Pearls, contributed so much. Um, Goodman, all these different thinkers yeah. contributed to this really, really lovely existential approach mm -hmm. to therapy. Uh, and well, yeah. I, I think its downfall was kind of two things too. It was like one, he was kind of a little bit more of a showman. He was probably kind of like me. Like you want, it was like, you're not, I want to show you how well this thing works by demonstrating it. And so sure. people thought it was too reductive. No, not reductive. They thought it was like too much of like a, um, I don't know, just some kind of a trite technique or something instead of he was showing them part of a system. And yeah. then also like East and West Coast Gestalt kind of got in a fight. I mean, it's like oh. the middle of California. People were like, this should be therapy. Yes, and the other people are like, it should be religion. Which I guess your therapy modality is successful if it accidentally forms like a, a religion slash cult you know i don't know <laughs> like a philosophical <laughs> life uh approach it, yeah i think uh that i you're absolutely right though about that thing and i think the the challenge that happens the unfortunate thing is like when certain people take things to their extreme um especially when part of the whole thing is trying to keep ideas alive to some degree um yeah. like let like you like you said let me show you something cool right and um I think what that winds up doing, though, is like 
uh, especially in the case of like gestalt therapy, like here's this like beautiful um, in, a a theoretical idea, right? Field theory, dialogical approach, I am thou, phenomenology, mm. relationship, the in-between bracketing, all these brilliant, really lovely existential concepts kind of like flowing into this approach. Um, and then we wind up with like, oh yeah, I do empty chair work, therefore I, I'm yeah, using yeah. it. And it's like, ah. <laughs> it's like, like saying like all Jungian therapy is active imagination, right? Like, uh, it's like, let's take a technique. We don't even give Jungian therapy, I mean, actual Jungians that are trained, it's like a ton of the time. Um, they just, especially, I think it's more of an American Jungian thing where they just sanitize it so much. And they're like, oh, it's just therapy plus Jesus, or it's like therapy you can bring to church or it's like a sand tray or something. like, but there's not, I mean, the same it happens with all modalities. Same thing you're talking about. It's like people mistake the technique for the, 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 the lens of the modality, which is how you're understanding a person, which is how you're, the conceptualization is so much more important than what you're doing in the room. You know? Oh, I agree so fully. I think, I, and the hard part is like, how do you describe being a human, right? Like the, <laughs> <laughs> it's so uh, the potentially nuanced. The problem with psychology there, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then how do we turn this into something that creates transformative change? And I think, I, I again, like, out of all the things that sort of Jungian slash Jung's love of alchemical ideas and that framework of thought, I think it's so beautiful because it's at least language that's... Um, not dependent on time, right? So mm -hmm. whether it's the Taoists or Ayurvedic traditions or these different things, they're all drawing from this concept of transformation. Uh, and now my experience, especially when, when we're looking at things like parts work and stuff, everybody's labeled these things in their own way with their own conceptual well, So much of the, the especially like IFS is yeah. like him just putting, um, which I, I don't dislike IFS. Like if I had a giant treatment center and I needed to train everybody to be able oh, to do the best work, with it. like, but like he put Jungian archetypes together with, ex with um, Gestalt therapies, experiential component. Mm -hmm. you know and some maybe some dbt skills but like th that's what it is you know and i the language of it is kind of dogmatic you know it, i think it's like yeah. so much easier to just say protective part you kind of feel how this one's a physical protective part that one's kind of an unconscious one or whatever then getting in a fight with a client about if something's like a firefighter or, <laughs> sure. or a protector or what like i personally like i mean it's people who do it do great work but yes you know i just i'm not as wild about the language of and, and, also, they and, think it's family therapy. Every time you say IFS, people think you're a family therapist. Sure. <laughs> They're like, what, do I have to bring my mother in? Well, yeah. the mother that lives in you, whether that's, you know, an She's already here. Yeah. <laughs> She's in the space, part of your phenomenological field. Look how we're doing this. <laughs> so what did, what did you work with Gestalt? But what are the kind of broad strokes of your practice now or the, the stuff that you... Uh, so, you know, I'm not an official anything, right? Because unfortunately, there's a pace wall that inhibits people from becoming certified in anything. And and I understand that to some degree because people want purity of systems, possibly, or they don't want to be misrepresented or what whatever that means. And that's okay. And I understand that, you know, I think, unfortunately, that, again, diminishes the free exchange of information and ideas. And then you wind up with, like you said, this dogmas that that have to approach existence in a very fixed pattern mm -hmm. and that that's neurotic traditionally <laughs> anyway but, yeah. um so i would say my current i i 
I would say the collection of things, right? So I do really like, primarily because it makes me feel confident and science is important to people and myself, right? So the sort of neurobiological um, piece, especially polyvagal theory, I really like that. Um, and again, all of those are uh, still constructs built on our current understanding of medicine and biology, but I really like polyvagal theory. I like, um, like I said, memory reconsolidation. I like mm -hmm. the idea that there are fundamental processes that mammals use to make adaptation. And that just makes sense to me. Um, and then sort of more of that, um, the gestalt oriented humanistic type of thing. So kind of mm. like sort of Maslow-y kind of existential stuff. Um, and then I did a real deep dive into like parts work and things because if you've ever sat with anyone, whether you're a therapist or otherwise, you there is a, there is a transition of consciousness between aspects of themselves, however you want to define that, right? Mm -hmm. And people have been exploring that from the beginning of time. In fact, like eye movement and all of these things have been deeply anal <laughs> analyzed by like Taoists and in, in ancient uh, Arabia, Arabia and like all these different kinds of things. People have been playing with human observation and how we do what we do. Um, but one thing that constantly shows up, and I, I met it first in Gestalt work, right? Doing empty chair. It's like, oh my gosh, what is this? Uh, we have two fundamentally different states of consciousness, and I use consciousness to define the whole being, right? It's not a, a thought process, but it's a total representation of self in the world, right, with environment. And it's just so fascinating there, and I really, really fell in love with that and started, like, strongly believing in it, in a sense. Um, however, that's an interesting space to go because it's very unknown, right? Like, um, and so I was looking for framework to understand this. And I first like got some deep framework in psychosynthesis, right? Um, Asagioli really going into all these details about subpersonalities and the alchemical process of, you know, transmutation of self. Um, and then I started kind of playing around from there. And, and it's interesting to see now what, what my work kind of shows up as, uh, after I've been exposed to all these different methods, voice dialogue, you know, mm -hmm. internal family systems, all these different ones. There's a gentleman, um, John. Well, does voice dialogue have like purchase out there? I mean, it, it seems like there's not a ton of places still doing it much. I, I, so I had to look to find all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, ego states is super fun, enjoyable from for folks because it, you know, derives from a currently utilized processes that are popular <laughs> that's like the last remnant of transactional analysis that's still out there yeah no absolutely yeah like this which which all have roots in this gestalt thing which all have roots in you know mm -hmm. psychoanalytic processes right it ego and super ego are parts right i mean mm -hmm. define them how you will they're they're something right yeah yeah and so i think finding out how to work with parts and also my own processes looked like working with parts and also realizing more of this kind of, again, this field-oriented idea or kind of this Buddhist idea of this non-local, non-duality. So it's like parts and no parts can both mutually exist. And what's meaningful is how it applies in the field of exchange in that moment with the the person. At least that's kind of what are, where I'm sitting at. I'm kind of wondering for your for yourself, how, how have you integrated that? Do you stick kind of like sharply to a process of the way of working with parts or how have you integrated this because you have a lot of really cool neurobiological 
techniques, right? And then you have this other stuff too. I'm kind of like, I'm very curious about that. Well, I mean, I think probably what you're responding to is when I'm looking at the way that a lot of these models are written, mm. you know, younger uh, pearls or whatever, mm. I mean, they're written in phenomenological language. It's like, this is yes. just how this feels. Yes. Um, and, and so they're kind of intuitive, which is the reason why a lot of people, they won't die. A lot of people are called back to them and a lot mm. of reasons why they're never going to be institutionally there is that they're not it's not an objective thing it's kind of an intuitive concept about don't you understand this part of your own experience you know mm -hmm. if you're chasing the academic thing and you don't understand that part of your experience that's not going to speak to you you know because yes. it's not it's not real you can't see it taste it touch it this is about <laughs> a subjective kind of felt state yes in the, in the parts of self that you can feel and work with um and i mean frankly i think to do certain kinds of trauma therapy you have to carry a certain amount of trauma that you've worked through yeah. um, well, yeah. you don't really you understand, understand it yeah, and but then now you know, there's neurology and neurobiology that is able to explain. Or we can make guesses. You know, mm -hmm. I'll still get like a, a nasty email um, from a clinical psychology student, but like we can make guesses about what these parts of the brain do, and right. that's always been my interest. And so it's like because I was always frustrated with just how much how how bad academia is at admitting that it's wrong. Like it's the same people publishing these papers that are like. You know, Jung doesn't, the unconscious isn't real, and this is whatever. <laughs> and now yeah, now trauma is trendy. So the same guy's like writing a paper that's like, well, there's tertiary, secondary, and primary levels of consciousness, but the tertiary levels are only, you know, symbolic function and show up in the body. And you're like, what, do you, dude, like, you're, you're wrong. Just, just write, I'm sorry. You know, that's the paper that you should be publishing. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're you're just so my thing is going back and saying, look, yeah, these these philosophies are perennial, meaning they pop up independently because there's people sort of feeling themselves and discovering the same thing about how we work. Yeah. And but then a lot of times you know, I don't really have a friend anywhere because I'm saying no, I'm not just in this club. I'm trying to say that all these clubs share functions and that neither one of them is they all have pros and cons. They all have drawbacks. Yes. People don't like that. You know, they like me for the extent of me saying, well, this is how I, what you're doing is interesting and here's a cool way to articulate it and here's some techniques there. They like that. Mm -hmm. And then I say, okay, but here's where the limitations are and where you can pivot if, oh, no, don't do not do that, you know. And that's that's the, you know, people kind of like the stuff online until they don't. You know, I won't even get a chance to respond to the email sometimes. It's just like, oh, this is great and I used it and this is great and I used it. Oh, wait, you said this thing that's threatening to the way that I practice, so I don't think you understand. <laughs> like, oh, I haven't said anything yet. Like, I don't know, you know. Um, I don't know if that answers it. But, uh, you know, that video that I have where I'm talking about, like, how I think the breakdown of these models is, like, how experiential they are and how cognitive they are. And so the person who comes in and says that they want existential therapy and they're like, I did my PhD in Sartre and you said existential therapy and I'm called to whatever. I'm like in the back of my head, I'm like, that's the last thing that you need, you know? Well, right. Because it's not that other people are, are hell, it's that you are in hell because you feel <laughs> bad. Like, and you, you don't need to, you know, and the same thing with the person who comes in that's just totally in their feeling state and their feelings, all that's real and they want to dump all this emotion. I mean, really what you need is to kind of get out, outside of that and see a bigger picture and have yeah. some kind of, you know, spiritual or philosophical ones to analyze your life. Uh, um, which Yalom says that in his book, that the kind of therapy you come in wanting is usually the last one that you need. And it's um, that um, Jungian function of opposites, right? Or this the tension of opposites, yeah. Yeah, 
And I was like, okay, yeah, we want to come in this way. So it's likely that the other side of that is probably where we're going to get the most yield. <laughs> However, mm. how, do we, how do we get you to feel comfortable walking into that space? Because we have to build structure and some different scaffolding to step into the unknown, right? So if I am like loaded with a certain perspective, it's easy for me to walk in that world until I dip my toe in the reality that I don't perceive. Then mm -hmm. it's like, oh my goodness. And then we get all of the functions of like adaptation, like, oh, that threatens my self-concept and do all this loveliness. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's if you just listen to conflict or politics or you know, whatever, it's like half of the half of the the fights that people get into or where they become the most reactive is just where somebody's saying, Hey, my behavior doesn't line up with my self-image and you're pointing that out to me. Oh, you know, <laughs> which is like one of the reasons why I can do therapy, but probably not anything else very well is that I don't quit doing that ever. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, if you say something, I'm going to take it at face value. And because of that, uh, you know, people come into therapy, there's kind of a buy into that process of like, but, you know, it makes you a miserable you know, person to be around at Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, maybe, sure. maybe we'll drop this episode then. <laughs> <laughs> right. like when I was in a hospital, like I couldn't turn it off. I mean, they would have this thing where they're like, hey, we really want to continuously improve and we want to know what the problem is and we want your all input and we want you to be honest. And then I'd be like, okay, well, then here's a thing that you could do easily that would save you money and it would make reduce burnout and it would reduce errors. And the downside is it might threaten somebody's ego or we would just have to admit that there's a problem, which is what you're asking. Oh, no, no, don't say that. That's not what you're supposed to. Okay, fine. Then you don't want what you said, so don't do this meeting. Like, give me three hours of my life every six months or say i want you to give me your honest feedback where it's a, you know you know what i mean like it's like as long as you're saying it i'm going to continue to take it at face value even though i know you don't mean what you're saying and i'm not going to stop doing that i mean that's the hell that i'm going to die on. and that's the phenomenological approach right yeah. like you literally cannot know anything other than what is happening in the immediate now right it's like everything else is extrapolation or some sort of like <laughs> projection or something so it's like okay this is what you mean right and they're like no Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is not what you mean, but this is what you're saying. Is that correct? <laughs> and I and I love that. Um, I love that this um, memory reconsolidation, like the fundamental initial tenant, is just creating this explicit awareness and then a juxtaposition <laughs> of, of like so this and this. Yes. Can you and talk a little like, bit about memory reconsolidation for uh, people that may not be familiar the, the technique there? Yeah, the absolutely. Let's see. Um, so, Ecker, um, Bruce Ecker, uh, Lauren Holy. Uh, so Bruce Ecker was uh, a physicist before he started getting into the whole therapy situation. And, you know, I love that people have passions because passions create like they take people down wormholes that lead to information I would never find because my passion doesn't lean in that direction. And so um, they really did a lot of work looking at this idea of um, how we fundamentally change our memories. Right. Right. Uh, there was this idea up until like the early 2000s or so that once it's in uh, long-term memory storage, you're stuck with it, right? And even we have in Van der Kolk's book, like the <laughs> body keeps the score. It's like, no, once it's in there, it's in there, you're stuck. <laughs> and uh, and then that leads, right? That necessitates creating processes where we're doing a counter um, development of a strategy, right? So we're looking for extinction, which is like, let me build up this neurological pathway that's contrary to this one so they can battle it out. And hopefully my prefrontal cortex wins out against my limbic system and my <laughs> subcortical areas when I'm threatened. Um, and, and we can do that through some desensitization and building up strategies, right? 
which is fine. And that, that also building strategies is how we learn, grow, and develop. However, the fundamental sense of emotional pain when I access a historical piece of my existence, that's not very fun. And that's what drives most of us um, to seek change. Hmm. Right? And, and this idea is really lovely because they were going off this model like you can't erase long-term memory once it's in it's in and then bah, whoa all sorts of cool experiments they're using mice and then they're putting in certain chemicals that inhibit uh the consolidation of um certain kinds of neurological processes and bada boom bada bang now we we're not having the long-term memory affect them on an emotional level but they still theoretically mm -hmm. hold on to that information in a chronological fashion Right. Yeah, so and, and anything like with brain science, because there are, you know, billions of connections is going to be reduced to some kind of metaphor. I mean, you, there's no way to talk about it without being reductive unless you're a supercomputer, yeah. you know. But I mean, that's a, a, another thing. A lot of the research is showing is the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system are out of sync. They're yeah. not acting in the same way, which I mean, to me, with brain spotting and ETT and a lot of the pupil dilation yeah. stuff that we do, oh, you, yeah. can't, you can't fake those reactions. You know, when no. your pupils like doing this. You're, you know, you're having a you know, brain bleed where you're maybe brain spotting works and it's doing something that's neurologically reproducible with a, 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 a reproducible effect, even if it's not past a zillion randomized controlled trials and isn't 30 years old yet. You right. know, something I can recreate in the room. I hear the same thing from the patient. It cures the same thing. You know, that's yes. how science works. Yeah. Um, even it starts, it starts here, you know. Um, you research it later, and um, and there are a lot of studies on it now being more effective than EMDR and some other things. But the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system fighting each other. One dilates the eye; it has kind of a sphincter-like muscle that tightens, right. and the other one has a pulling muscle that opens the eye. Sorry, I hit my mic. Um, and that when you usually don't drive with your foot on the gas and the brake. Right. You know, yeah. But what I can do is hit those to be intention. You know, with color, light, frequency, eye position. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, all the different new techniques that we have now, eye movement sometimes until they resync, and my body is assuming the same thing that the front of my brain is assuming about how the world works, not something that is 15 years old, you know, traumatic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I love that. And and it, this even speaks to like um, Peter Levine, the oscillation yeah, between yeah. felt senses, right? Even going back to um, earlier stuff of self observation, we're looking at like Gendlin, Eugene Gendlin in this focusing, right? Like, here's a felt sense, I experience it, I look, I put words on it. And then there's this curious thing. Um, speaking back to this memory reconsolidation piece, which I, I love because it's um, non theoretical, right? It's it, the, it is theoretical in the scientific sense, but it's uh, <laughs> trans theoretical in the sense that it doesn't belong to anybody. Nobody can. Yeah. You know, like they say, like, oh, this is my method. You can't reconsolidate memory. Only I can do that. Right. Like, I have it all. It's mine. <laughs> Let, pay me thousands of dollars to learn my strategy, which is fine. Yeah, and that I is kind of, even the models that I like, it's kind of off-putting where they're like, well, if you use this word, then you're, you know, whatever. It's like, man, come on. Like, <laughs> why are you doing this? Like, well, they, we have to on some, because it's marking territory and it's validating um, philosophical uh, processes and trying to differentiate that from something else and all, all the things. Uh, so what I love though, and I'm, I'm very curious, especially with um, brain spotting um, and various other eye movement type things, whether that's NLP and the different ways of accessing or looking in the visual field or any of these things, um, or even just staying with the micro tremors and um, neurogenic tremoring that happens during certain kinds of activation, all the good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The lovely thing about this um, this idea, so the concept here for the memory reconsolidation is that it is theoretically the way. So not and and sometimes that feels kind of powerful, but it is the way of creating 
forever emotional change. Mm -hmm. And the, the way that it works is memory is consolidated during event of high emotion, right? So boom, yeah. I store that in my system. However we do that, we have no clue, right? We, mm -hmm. we have all these ideas on how memory works, but it's way too integrative to just be reduced to like neurons. It's a, uh, it, yeah. So memory is stored with emotion, right? In order to change that, and the process is really, really simple, but it's also challenging because um, the process is, is this. I need to activate that as a felt experience, that memory with the emotional component. Once I activate that memory in a felt experience, I need to create an explicit um, juxtaposition is the word that they use. Something that fundamentally on a felt sense disconfirms the fact that that is whatever that might be, whether that's I'm using an eye thing and I'm in a safe space or whatever that is. And what that does is it unlocks all of the patterns of how that's held because now just like an animal, right? I have an explicit fact that contradicts the emotional content. And once that opens, then we have a process of five hour window where if we continually repeat a the disconfirming event, mm -hmm. when it reconsolidates, the evidence says that what should happen is that should no longer elicit anything. You can call it back up and it will be a historical piece of information, but it mm -hmm. will not be emotional mm -hmm. uh, charged to it. It and sounds like uh, uh, lifespan integration is doing that too. I'm not trained in that one. You know, I've read the book and I, I, one of my supervision candidates is, is really into it. Um, mm -hmm. But it sounds similar in that you're kind of taking these things that are felt experiential, pretty strong activating memories, but they are contradictory and then ramming them all through so quickly that you can't continue to have all of that stored somatic memory um, be unchallenged and then the brain kind of lets it go. Yeah, and that life, the timeline and lifespan stuff is really interesting because if we look at NLP, they've been using timelines and things for a long, long, yeah. long, long time, right? And this is one of the other things that I struggle with is People will take ideas that are explicitly described in older therapeutic modalities. They mm -hmm. will not give credit to the line of thinking and oh, they yeah. will attribute it to their own process. That is one of the things. Well, and then that's... sometimes they don't even know when they're doing it. I mean, you can kind of but, tell when people know that they're doing it and when people don't, you know, like Joseph Campbell bringing Jung to America. I mean, I feel like he knew what he was stealing and he <laughs> didn't, you know, give, he was a Jungian and he didn't give credit to it. Mm. You know, um, he, he said that, you know, but, um, yeah, there's other people where I think they've just heard something and then they start doing something and then they decide they can, you know what I mean? Like the. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, what I really, what I really love though about this process. So this idea, memory, recall it somatically in a felt way, juxtaposition of experience, something that completely ex explicitly confronts that creates mm -hmm. the unlock, which then allows new information to be encoded and the memory to go away. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's really kind of neat is though, this is very dependent on each situation. So you can you can remove the emotional um, charge of a certain thing, but if it has other connections or other parts are attached to it, each of those would also need to go through this process of um, memory uh, reconsolidation in order to get the full effect of when I think of that in this, 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 this context, it no longer elicits that strong necessary emotional survival response. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what I like about it is because it's kind of like <laughs> it, just a concept neurologically, <laughs> it means that every therapeutic modality could theoretically work. And if they worked, it means they followed this 
natural biological process. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if, if what I really love about concepts like that is that it's it gives a lot of freedom back to the clinician to trust mm -hmm. their their artfulness, their own their intuition. Their intuition, yeah. So it says, yeah. okay, this is generally how it works. Even if you was polyvagal theory, I think was also beautiful for that. This is generally how it works. Mm -hmm. Now, knowing that within the confines of the biology, let's let's use our creative, playful curiosity to generate new outcomes. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that you can't teach. You know, it's like I love it if there's an interview candidate that fights with me um, <laughs> because they understand something and they believe it and they know something. They're not just trying to figure out what somebody wants from them. Those are the clinicians that take years to get better, the ones that are coming from the hospital or something. And like, mm. it's almost like they were trained not to think for themselves and justify everything that they do in this thing. And, you know, like the question that you can't fake in an interview, you know, if you're, uh, if you're early in your therapy education, remember this one, I mean, just absorb a ton of podcasts and a ton of like current material on that. And then go in with like a fresh perspective and be like, this is where I think it's headed. This is where it's not because you can't fake that question. I mean, when the, when we do like executive coaching and people are talking about hiring, like I always mentioned, like just ask them the last thing that they learned independently oh. that they applied to their job. If there's somebody's telling you about what they learned in college 20 years ago, don't hire them. If they're like, well, I kind of think this, and I think this way, even if it's coding, it doesn't have to be therapy because you can't teach curiosity. No it's a pretty good indicator of one, you know, self-awareness, um, a, a, a conscious relationship with intuition and uh, a drive to be better, you mm. know, which is what you want, mm -hmm. which is what you want in the room, you know? I, uh, and I love, I like that, that phrase he said, curiosity can't be taught. And the other thing, because it can't be taught, it means that it's a biological function. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is the like ventral vagal thing. It's like, and, and everyone uses different languaging, higher self, maybe the self or these things. But the neat thing well, I, is... I think it can be healed. You know, I'm not saying that some people are born with it and some people aren't. It's genetic. I'm saying that, like, your relationship to your trauma and your life and your sense of self, that mm -hmm. is a really good indicator of whether or not those things are in a good place. You know, because mm -hmm. a ton of people, you know, it's like a ton of people who... That's why EINFJ types are so dangerous. You know, you get, yes. Jesus, you get Jesus and you also get Hitler. Like, you know, because you, you're you're intuition is so strong in order to like see what people want to hear and then get them to, in their own language to go somewhere which can make you really capable as a therapist mm -hmm. but also as a cult leader mm -hmm. and a lot of those people who are doing the, i mean some are grifters but a lot of the people who are doing bad work like it's not that they're um meaning to it's that they're mistaking trauma for intuition because they come from the same part of the brain yeah. and they're they're actually having this trauma response but it feels like I'm, the spirit's in me and I'm giving the sermon, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> and, I don't know. And like the early days of charismatic Christianity in the old West, I mean, it really was wild that it was just like, Oh, up in the mountains, everybody with a dopamine disorder needs to, they've got the calling. Now let's, <laughs> well, I mean, people would scream and cry and see things and lay on the ground and, and, yeah. and, and, and buttoned up Victorian society was like, this slaps, man. Like, this is the coolest thing. Like I'm, you know, and they were feeling something like, yes, profound. <laughs> yeah. That's, but you know you want your intu intuition to be conscious is the point you know yeah i like that and i i think that um like being able to, and even speaking to that piece right the neat thing is that humans when given a safe container and given permission to be appropriately expressive and to feel 
uh, especially with others, because we do all this really cool neurological connection, you know, this mirror neurons and the distribution of like emotional tension, whether that's electromagnetic through whatever that is, as we're doing all that fun stuff or whatever. But the neat thing is when we have a community of people that are coming together with a, and ideally <laughs> with full intention and understanding of what they're doing, and then they create a space for exchange and support. Man, those are the, the most beautiful healing environments, the Temnos, right? This container. Yeah, um, that was the title of Will Salmon's book uh, about mm. the spirituality of urban planning. A guy, he, he was on our podcast earlier. He's a really nice guy. Oh. You know, but Temnos is the, is the name. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, and the thing, I think, the disempowering part of information, right? In some respects, I, I think like it is, theoretically it's neutered right it's just information and we have the freedom to ex connect with that but though another battle that i fought one of my own like internal oppressors or <laughs> call it what you will right it's like trying to do things the right way you know and yeah. and i've i've been in enough it reduces anxiety if there's a right way you know and Absolutely. and therapy gets to a point where somebody's being like no i know that you don't know i know it's up to me but i'm worried that i'm doing me wrong you know and it is this thing that it's such a silly idea or a silly statement but it's a real thing and that we have this insecurity about if we're doing us right you know <laughs> i mean I, I had somebody one time that told me okay yeah you're saying that if i get rid of this then i'll sit down and i'll know exactly who i am and i'll be able to connect with people in a way that's good and and but what if i do that and i don't like who that guy is and i just started laughing so it's like what am i what am i supposed to say and what if i like myself and the self that i am right now is repulsed by the self that it could be in the future if I hold my potential. It's like, but it's so human. It makes a ton of sense. It's not like that person. I'm not making fun of them. I'm just saying like we right. all do that, right? Yes. I just never heard it said. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't like that guy. Yeah. Well, I don't like the authentic me. <laughs> mm. And I think um, the the challenge with all of these like structured ways of having to be or trying to get it right, and somebody saying I have the way, and all of this stuff, you know, mm. it. The things that I think get um, hamstrung by those things in particular are the power of our own in, impressive creativity, mm -hmm. the beauty of our intuition. And then the other thing is this, and I think this is something that earlier, um, Young and some of the Gestaltists and, and folks, the, the aesthetic vol value of beauty and felt sense, uh, like congruence with beauty, like I don't think there's any objective way of measuring what feels congruent right good and beautiful so well, that's that means architecture we, we write a lot about architecture and have talked to a couple i'm supposed to be on the um the australian institute of architectures podcast mm -hmm. a little bit later on but that's one of the things is it's like is it's an archetypal thing and not a lot of people apply jung's theories visually i mean some mm -hmm. artists sort of did that in the 70s mm -hmm. and he didn't he generally did not like that art because he thought there was supposed to be a descent and then a return you weren't just supposed to be enamored with the unconscious and become a psychonaut right, you're supposed to dissolve your ego and then come back and have yeah. learned something from it and have been transformed but also go back to being how you were, you know, but a better right. version Here's of that. Journey piece. But yeah, architecture is getting in touch or filmmaking, you know, so many of those things. I mean, that's what you're saying is it's finding the beautiful isn't just, I came up with it. It's almost like, you know, intuition is some, like a radio wave that you tune yeah. into and channel this thing or you don't. And I mean, and you can say that you could use spiritual language about that, or you could use secular language of just this kind of deep genetic programming that we're getting in touch with, but only you can run your experiment to the end. You know, your choice is, do you do that or do you fail to? Uh, or do you ignore uh, it? 
yeah and it's again that call to adventure i like that kind of languaging around this thing and i and i think um there's a beautiful book um by um piero ferrucci i guess uh is his name and he's a, a psychosynthesist right and he what has that? i'm not familiar with him um psychosynthesis mm -hmm. yeah so psychosynthesis um was near the end time of freud's um process asagioli was a psycho um analyst uh, and he worked closely with Jung as well um, down in Italy. And he created a beautiful, beautiful model. He, he was informed by theosophy, which is a really cool amalgam of a lot of different spiritual concepts. Mm -hmm. um, Blavatsky and these types of folks brought all that in. Um, and yeah, a lot of those flying around Vienna around that. Point. Oh, yeah. And yeah, during that time period, right, there's a lot yeah, of this. Freud is kind of more of an inevitability than we give him credit for. I mean, there's other people or they're not given credit for than we I think we give him too much credit. You know, it's kind of like Columbus, like you have enough ships going around there. Somebody's <laughs> going to bump into it and realize you can't sail to India. If, if his ship sinks, somebody else does it. When you look at what's going on in Vienna with like clamps, everybody, you know, like people were going to apply this idea that maybe we are not only what we think, maybe there's forces beneath the surface mm -hmm. to medicine, to psychology. And they probably would have done it a little bit better than Freud, you know, the, the random guy, you know. <laughs> right. well, and unfortunately, like he had to create a modality that he could sell to a community which believed in the world in a certain kind of way, you know? Mm -hmm. But some of the earlier ideas and even the archetypical imagery that comes in, this Thanatos and Eros and um, like all these- He puts the Thanatos back, you know? Yeah, like this this existential requirement of this death thing, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, and then like even libidinal energy, I love that. Whether it goes into uh, Wilhelm Reich and talking about the embodied memory system, how the unconscious is the body um, mm -hmm. or, or otherwise, I think that there's a lot of really neat stuff there. And then of course you can see a lot of this cultural overlay and you know, and then, then we had all this beautiful stuff pre that time, even like mentalism and these different kinds of like mm -hmm. hypno hypnotic type concepts that used a lot of like alchemical concept and um, ways of defining the world, right? The world is mind uh, in using like the <laughs> Emerald tablet and these different theorems of like alchemical transformation, right? So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it really set a really cool space and gave words and language to it to start playing around with it. And I love that people dissented explicitly i think that that i think if anything right mm -hmm. that is what mental health is about is like you've created a construct and i love that you've done that thank you so much for putting words out there i disagree on some of these levels and that's important mm -hmm. because if we all collude um we we definitely uphold the delusion yeah <laughs> like yeah and i mean I, and the, i think you know one, one of my things has always been like I don't want to just get trained in any kind of therapy and then be the expert. I want to be in that kind of therapy as a patient before I do it with another patient. Cause the, there's the awe of learning and then there's the aha of feeling. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, so I'm a huge advocate. I mean, sometimes people are kind of sheepish and they're like, well, I've come here for a while. And you know, it's like, yeah, you don't need therapy anymore. You're fine. Like if, if you're unsettled with something, come back, but like you should go try something else. You know, yes. you've probably heard my perspective. You've heard the way that I think. And like you've gotten, you've internalized what you need to internalize. You've filtered out what you don't. And like somebody else is going to tell you something different, you know, and, yes. and that is going to be useful too. So, I mean, Jungian analysis was a totally different experience for me than CBT um, mm -hmm. was a totally different experience um, than kind of a more psychodynamic, but you, 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 you learn that language and it's why I can wear the hat now. You know, if you just try and learn all of it intellectually and then right. you're like, Oh, I read all the books that's why you're you like don't know how to apply it and you end up just picking the one you like the most you know and only mm -hmm. doing that 
It's because you haven't really been in it as a patient enough to know how to do it as a provider, I think. I agree with that. I think I've struggled with that too, because again, there's this price wall that's constructed in order to access certain types of approaches, right? Like, yeah. unfortunately, if I label it with something, I can charge you another $50, right? It's yeah, yeah. And that's when you're saying that people are like coming up with these new models and then changing the name and not giving credit. Half the time, it's the person that they're, it's the Institute's fault that mm -hmm. is charging you $200 to have this on your website because we copyrighted a phrase. It, you know? Right. Well, and that makes sense. Yeah. Having to create language in order to not be like copyright. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's some eye movement therapies that are combinations of ETT, NLP, and BSP that we worked on and we're kind of doing with other therapists and we've yes. tried on our spouses and like, it's interesting. Yes. But it's like, where do you go with that? If I call that ETT, I got to talk to Dr. Vasquez. If I call it brain spotting, I got to talk to, if I call it fusion, I got to talk to both. Like, what do I want to do? You know, I don't really want to be the guy going to conferences and being like, here's a new thing, you know, for 10 yeah. years. I just don't want to. But like, or do you just make up a new thing and then have everybody be like, oh, so you just pulled this out of nowhere and it's not evidence based at all. Like, yeah, I don't I don't know. You know, and I, <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. Like, for instance, like we have uh, sensory motorcycle therapy. We have um, Hakomi. We have all these really kind of nifty things, right, where people are labeling their personal approach to. And oftentimes rooted in a lot of these traditional things, right? So we have like vegetotherapy oriented, Wilhelm, like Reichian stuff, like whether people want to buy into it or not, or like the outcome of, of Wilhelm Reich's life or any of those things, like you, you're probably deriving some of your breath methodology, your observational awareness and phenomenology from old school body armoring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Uh, through bioenergetics. Well, Reich didn't community. do himself any favors either. No. I mean, he kind of, he was trying to shoot down UFOs with uh, right. orgasm yeah. energy by the end of his life. And the dispersing like <laughs> rain clouds and things. And that's, yeah. <laughs> well, I know the FBI took all the equipment too, which even for the time was kind of an overreaction. I mean, he really made some people <laughs> mad. Or maybe mm -hmm. they just wanted all the orgasm energy for themselves. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what I think is funny too is like any psychotherapy lens like what you're talking about that kind of perspective when you you go so far into it and then you extrapolate it it like becomes a cosmology you know <laughs> like Jungian analysis is like oh wow there's archetypes so what does that mean and Freud's but Wilhelm Reich you know going nuts kind of was somebody making a Freudian mesophysics like a classical Freudian metaphysics and then being like oh, okay well if sexuality is the energy ever under everything maybe sexuality is also the energy of the cosmos and atoms are respond to orgasms or you know what like <laughs> and, and, yeah right so this orgone energy which is taken from the idea of the original libidinal energy libidinal energy mm -hmm. is just life energy which is sexual or otherwise it's projection whatever that is but it lives right Freud usually applied it in the realm of sex more than other yes. places yes yeah. he did <laughs> um however the neat thing though is let's say like let, if we change our lens and we look at tantric traditions from tibet or india right now we have this idea of the interplay of this duality of relationship between energies of masculine and feminine when they use um sexual language to describe the fundamental um, workings between polarities, right? And so yeah. in the alchemical marriage, right? So this idea of creating a, a total self using yeah. this sort of language. Yeah, I was going to so say the, the Rosicrucian chemical marriage, but I mean, even like just sex is kind of, you know, a, a big force and part of our humanity, but it also is just a pretty obvious metaphor when you're <laughs> making metaphors, you know, even like, I mean, there's Psalms in the Bible that are talking right, yeah. about the love of God is the love, you're, you loving God is the same of the love of man and woman, you know? It's Absolutely. like, what is that meme that's out now where they're like, 
you know, somebody invents like a clock and then they're like, oh, God is a watchmaker. And then somebody invents architecture and they're like, God is an architect. And then somebody invents uh, an AI and they're like, oh, we're in a simulation. You know, it's just like the easiest way, you know. <laughs> That's true. It's yeah. not too far removed yeah. between the metaphor that incorporates that. I think the, the nice thing though, when we're starting, the neat thing about that is when we connected these qualities, like psychic qualities or libidinal qualities or whatever to the body, what we, what we can do at that point, though, is now we have some languaging to explore the phenomenology of my felt experience. Ooh, that's excitement. How does excitement work? Well, I experience it in this fashion, in this way. Mm -hmm. And then now we're like, oh, how, do, how does my body produce energy, which is felt, yeah. for me to engage with this world? And then we have all the kind of ways that we create creative adaptation to all the things. And I, mm -hmm. that's another thing that I really love from sort of this memory reconsolidation um, type stuff coherence therapy is this um bruce ecker and lauren yeah, Holy familiar stuff. it's like a somebody trying to make a solution focused brief treatment of psychoanalysis which is kind of well, interesting it's, yeah. it's interesting because it's 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 following the memory reconsolidation thing so theoretically right and i have i've always loved this and i don't <laughs> it always baffled me that a moment of explicit trauma can indelibly burn in a learned experience for life mm -hmm. if that's true using kind of this polarities duality process it well, must unless you know the brain is thinking about it in a different way and like a almost religious or spiritual way you know why mm -hmm. other moments are not being re-experienced all the time but traumatic moments are so that's traumatic. telling you that that's a different kind of memory right so this idea that it does this but my wondering is this right and i've always wondered this from the very beginning of every time i <laughs> the, the first somatic oriented therapy i think it was um sensory uh yeah anyway peter levine i was uh, looking yeah. at peter levine's work and i was like oh this is curious is that like if a memory is this manic experiencing is that what you're... yeah manic yeah. experience so if a memory can be created so powerfully in a moment it should be able to be uncreated in a moment right just, you, just you making contact with the somatic memory in a way that is not re-traumatizing yep. you know and and it always like it always kind of like tickled my mind to to think that because if it can be created, it should be un be able to be uncreated in such in that kind of way. Now we've talked about not wanting to re-traumatize people and kind of titrating those experiences, which which I understand. Um, which however, are things you can't do, you know, it's why you have to be able to you know take you know appropriate risks at a certain point. But there's not always a way to eat some of those memories in this bite-sized way that some of the models are designed to do. You know? And I think. I think you're right. In my experience working with people and in my own kind of self process as I go through that, right? Like there are some memories that must be experienced as a gestalt. Like the whole yeah. fixed experience must be digested in the moment. It, well, brain spotting does that, you know? Yeah. Like if you if you have somebody who's pushing enough to take you all the way in, I mean, I've said, you know, I'm kind of frustrated. Everyone that I've ever talked to that has had a bad experience with brain spotting, the provider didn't look at the people at all. They didn't really map the trauma at all. They were just mm -hmm. like, what do you feel here? 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 And the person was like, nothing, nothing. Um, but like it pulls everything up at once, which is kind mm -hmm. of spiritually profound and interesting to have this two, three day process where you're re-experiencing all these things, mm -hmm. mastering them. And at the end, you know, memory comes back or you kind of realize what it was you were processing either yourself mm -hmm. or working with a therapist, you know, ETT, um, which is, you know, a newer thing that. Yeah. Using the light. Of, yeah. The, like it can bring up incredibly specific parts. Mm -hmm. surgically you know and i loved brain spotting I, I still love it so it's not like 
you know, but you know, it's, it's not appropriate for everything. I don't think any one thing is, mm -hmm. and it's, it's wild. Like with, with ETT, there was like one of the eye movements. We had the color and frequency and the person <laughs> said, can you do something with like uh, acid reflux? And I was like, well, I mean, that's not really how it works, but I got, you know, what was supposed to be for kind of throat, lungs, breathing, like top neck, that area, which is kind of a blue green color, a certain flicker rate, whatever. And she was looking at it and then immediately started remembering when she was eating as a kid and she yeah. was shamed. And then she, her whole stomach kind of shutting down and then this whole thing just came up, but it wasn't this whole memory about your whole relationship with this child, like everything, it was this incredible around that one somatic Very specific. emotional thing in this specific way. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's speaking to this kind of memory reconsolidation thing. That's, that's what that also looks like, right? It's like every single moment that has created a pattern, it has a, it, that creative adaption started because of a reason, right? So it's like, and, if we attend to that, whether again, we're focusing on a feeling, whether we're looking at a space in in a visual field, whether we're moving our eyes to inhibit our amygdalas, whether we're stomping our feet, whether we're psycho, whether we're dancing, uh, whether we're doing like, uh, you know, any, any of the modalities that exist that are human modalities of expression, right? Whatever we track and whatever we stay with, if we were to stay with it enough and give language to it, even if we were doing some like, um, just fill in the blank sort of uh, word association stuff, it is likely that all those roads would lead to a story, right? Mm -hmm. And once the nice thing about knowing what the story and is, sometimes is that, our body remembers it in a way that our the front of our brain can't, which is where a bunch of those modalities get stuck. I mean, if you're drugged or pass out during an experience, it can be traumatizing, but the memory is not written right. It's like a corrupted file on the hard drive yes. where, you know, you maybe you're all you're going to get is the body's response to it, and and that and that's what you have to go through and process it. But you're never going to be able to do this stuff because you didn't see it you didn't perceive it right you know and maybe I, if you're very young the damage is written in a different way kids don't make narrative memory till kind of three or four right uh, in, in a cognitive way yeah and i think and what i like too is like the narrative that we experience doesn't have to be the the experience itself right mm -hmm. so consciousness accessing something in a way that my total brain can experience, which involves language components often, right? Um, when I can conceptualize it, even if it's a, a theme, for instance, I have to not eat because I will be hurt. Now, mm. that doesn't have to have an explicit memory, but that's a felt sense that I'm giving words to. And once I can hold that with the experience in my conscious awareness now, and then I create these moments that contradict those. Those are the things that unlock those old patterns. Mm. Um, and you're right. We can do that without eliciting that cognitive piece. However, it seems, in my experience at least, that that part is very useful for having, uh, I guess, a total gestalt, a whole story, right? Yeah, yeah. The narrative piece is a really lovely part of me understanding myself in the world. Um, whereas if I do a, a purely um, somatic exercise, let's say I do a holyotrophic br breathing or I go through mm -hmm. like some psychedelic thing, that can be really awesome. However, without the right framing, I think those things can also be disempowering. Mm -hmm. we're, we're attributing it to some other something mm -hmm. instead of acknowledging that it's a us thing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but I, I think that like it's not that the narrative is unimportant when you don't remember the event or it's not, you know, able to be perceived. It's that you don't have 
like an intellectual cognitive memory there, it becomes part of a bigger narrative, you know, yes. like a, a bigger story. And you're still linking it to that, but figuring out what happened or who or whatever. I mean, even if you do knowing yeah. oh, is Colonel Mustard in the green room with the rope doesn't heal, you know, right. It's no. re-experiencing physically and then going through the crisis, having the crisis resolve and then letting my heart and my body feel safety. You know, uh, I, the thing. I love that. And I love that pattern. And I think that animals, are such a brilliant um, exposition of that, right? Like we have these systems because they're designed to deal with the world. And when we get to a place of completion, like I'm activated, I activate my parasympathetic or my sympathetic responses, they engage, they discharge appropriately to create the safety that I need. And then I take in the environment of safety, which is a completely different thing. And then it allows my body to dissipate or discharge or complete that cycle. The huge part, and I think in most of the somatic type work is like the, it never gets finished, right? It's the unfinished business story, right? It's like, I never got to feel like it worked and I never got mm -hmm. to feel that it's over and I never get to feel safe. So my body's going to keep on generating. But I don't want to admit that and accept that framing because I know that it's over. Yeah. I, I know that. Okay, so yes. I shouldn't have to feel that. Mm -hmm. is the is the the fight that you get into with the more kind of st um you know sensory thinking type patient mm -hmm. and and i think that's an interesting space because and again you have to move that into that feeling frame right it's like okay yes you're right it is absolutely over and yet here you are and your body is still exhibiting behaviors necessary for that condition to be met mm -hmm. <laughs> so so how do we create an experience now where that can be done right yeah like, yeah uh, and yeah, and I think that's the art of therapy, right? And it's not the, yeah, it's a, it's a very curious thing. Well, it sounds like you're doing amazing work when um, your practice and, and where you are. I mean, you have kind of longer term career plans or what, what do you, what, what do you see yourself? Um, I, so I just love doing therapy and I love reading all these things and trying to make sense of it. Cause I'm a human in the world trying to <laughs> make sense of that. The thing that I would love to do at one point, which is something I deeply appreciate about what you're doing. And there's a lot of people doing this is putting information out for people to have access to it without any paywalls or any kind of things like yeah. that. Right. I think, I think giving people free access to information so that they can experiment with what works for them. So mm -hmm. If I were to create a fantastical future adventure for myself, right, um, it would be to continue to learn and use mediums mm -hmm. along the way, hopefully as I feel a little bit more like grounded and confident in my own process mm -hmm. uh, and just share those things w with always with the condition of like, this could or could not be true. Mm -hmm. uh, please experiment with it within the appropriate context using the appropriate supports that you need yeah. in order to achieve those outcomes, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think, um, I mean, I'd really love, you know, it, it wouldn't, it would be something that would be down the road if I was doing it, but I'd love for, um, like Taproot to be able to host like almost like a depth psychology library that's free, mm. um, because there's so much stuff that's out there in the, in the common domain, um, or that people, professors are retiring or whatever, and they're just mm -hmm. likely to be like, yeah, you can have all of my papers and make them available. <laughs> and it's stuff that you can't even get through the, you know, that journal was gone 12 years ago or whatever. Right. Oh, um, yeah. And even if you pay $600 a month, you still can't read it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to put together something like that. You know, our, our website, our collective is just kind of, um, we're all trying to, we think we can build something that is better 
together than we can individually and, and you get a cost sharing and everything that goes with that. But yeah, if you're ever interested in, in working on something that we, if we could help, like if, you know, I can give you the access to the website to, you know, kind of host or build something on the back end, like, I don't know, some, some kind of electronic, you know, thing, if, if that's ever anything that you're interested in, in doing. Ah, awesome. Thank you so much for taking some time to kind of explore some concepts around the therapy. It's lovely to explore and have these conversations. And I think yeah. um, it helps kind of flesh out and build some um, deeper understanding for myself. So thank you very much for uh, taking some time with me. Yeah, I mean, and I've got, you know, I got to pick my daughter up in just a minute, but um, or I've, I've, you know, I've got 15, 20 minutes or so. I mean, what, like, is there anything else? Because I, I don't want to, you had reached out, and I think initially with some questions or, or things you wanted to discuss, and I, I would like to, you know, get to all of that stuff. Sure. I don't know how much of that was included in what we already did. Yeah, I think a fair bit was. Um, if you're, yeah, so we have another about fifteen minutes. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so. And I can, you can call. I can call. Try and get in touch with you later this week. November's a lot. The past three months have been just like the most uh, wild ever. I mean, but it's it's calming relatively yeah. down. So. So some things that I wonder that I would I would like to bring up or explore if we um, with the time that we have left. Sure. Um, so because I'm not officially trained in any of these things, and also there's these paywalls to get exposure and therapy through these things, yeah. um, I usually wind up being the subject of my own experimentation, right? So I apply these things, the methods and concepts to myself mm -hmm. as often as possible, right? Like whether yeah. it's using um, brain spotting, right? And I kind of like feeling that felt sense and associating with that, or it's Schultz work or otherwise, right? So I definitely understand the value of having another person. I think that that fundamentally changes- Well, you can't always do it. You can't always afford it. Or there's right. not somebody local or what? I mean, sometimes the self-work is the only option for certain things. Right. And yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. So one thing that I was wondering about, and and I did some more research and things when I first saw brain spotting, I said, oh my goodness, this looks really interesting. I like this idea, right? And this is also before I ran into uh, memory. It's with any kind of therapy too. You know, even mm -hmm. like cognitive behavioral people like it. I mean, there's somebody in the training, usually it's more kind of less cognitive providers and somebody who was one of the trainers and one of the things was like, oh, my cognitive therapy person mm -hmm. that does brain spotting and i was like oh wow and i was listening and she was like you know brain spotting does the thing where cognitive therapy can actually work because the body calms down and then they can learn all this stuff you know it's like oh wow it's, that's a neat way to think about behavior you know but mm -hmm. it, that's what my problem with behaviorism is that they think you can change behavior by talking about it you know most times mm -hmm. people know what they're supposed to do they just right do that you know right and that's that experimental needing to experience that's the experiential th therapies that were in the 1960s 1970s yeah. when they were doing all this really good stuff mm -hmm. and then we get into these ethical quandaries that have created what we have today to some degree yeah. but it is what it is that i but i really deeply uh, appreciate living now in that there's so much beautiful there's like a thousand waterfalls pouring into this um current you know zeitgeist right this current like space and yeah if if I want to and I'm open to it and I I can I can check my prejudices against certain conceptualizations and methods, mm. I can take in a lot of really beautiful stuff that's very transformative. Um, so one thing as I I was doing these kind of experiments, right, kind of like playing with that up down using the z x y axis, different kind of like checking different points and like moving between different points. What I know I can't do brain spotting on myself at all. Like there's inside and outside window when you get trained, and outside yeah. window is where the providers just look yeah. at the pupil, and inside window is when you're trying to see what the person feels. Yeah. And for me, like so, outside window is a lot more effective in my experience because a ton mm -hmm. of my patients are so dissociated they don't know what they feel anyway. Yeah. So they're like, I don't notice anything there. And I'm like, no, just hang out a minute. You're you're gonna feel it. 
but when I do brain spotting with my therapist, I'm just like, I don't know. I think I felt something here. And she's like, it's, and then I'm gone, you know? So it, like some, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, I'm particularly mm -hmm. bad at it. So I'm wondering in your processing. So when I did this thing and I'm kind of playing around with this, uh, and as I'm holding this space, right, I'm kind of like noticing my natural responses, right? Maybe some swallowing, maybe some like rapid blinking, maybe the eyes start to, you know, agitate. Um, maybe I, I start feeling kind of those little neurogenic tremors that we're getting from this body discharge stuff. And, and I love that. And it makes total sense from a biological standpoint, right? Everything starts with orienting, right? Mm -hmm. Period. Every, 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 everything started with an orienting reflex. That's fun. That's just how it is, right? You, <laughs> and so, I find this place, I hold that in space, right? Holding that. And what I've noticed in my own process as I've been playing with that in certain um, cases, I'll start there with a feeling, right? There's a felt sense, I'm experiencing that, I'm with it. And then my mind will automatically start populating that with parts. <laughs> so now what, I, what I've seen happens is here's my finger, my finger is there, I'm attending to this, and then my finger becomes a part, right? So now I'm noticing that there's me, a self, a part there. And then it has dialogue and concept that starts playing out in my mind. And then I'm playing out and my active other parts are starting to play out there. And if I hold that space, my my processing, right? My primary modalities and otherwise, that's what they like to do. They create a dialogue oriented story because I'm very auditory. Mm -hmm. And then they'll play that through to a, a sense of um, completion. However, that story wants to kind of close itself up. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious though. And that's what really drew me to this is like, what if we, you know, because also the other piece is like, if you have your eyes closed and you do this as well, right? Your eyes still move mm -hmm. if your eyes are closed because that's just what we do to access information. And uh, the neuro-linguistic program folks talked about this decades and decades and decades ago. Right? Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of curious, is that- They, they didn't have the neurology though. I like uh, the problem is like, they, they don't distinguish between prefrontal med and subbrain. And so, like that's why it's, it doesn't work. It's like the, the eye movement NLP stuff is neurologically very interesting, but your eyes gonna drift there when you're really feeling. Like you could just look here and lie. So mm -hmm. saying constructed memories here, audio memories there, like that's not right. the best metaphor about how the brain works because it can do different things, you know? Right, yeah, the fixed location I think is interesting, but they using and discussing the visual field and how mm -hmm. tracking side to side from different areas of visual yeah, yeah. field, super fascinating, I think. Um, I'm sort of wondering what's been your experience. You don't have to give any explicit information, but when you've worked with folks and you're doing this um, brain spotting type methodology, mm -hmm. either the fixed point or you're kind of like jumping between points or tracking between things or whatever, um, does it often have a narrative component? Like, do people often um, express to you that they're experiencing an internal story with parts? Um, do you, ex and there's a whole branch Heart of brain therapy is like fuses so well with brain spotting. It's almost becoming part of the training. Like most of the yeah. trainers will train you in it and I'm not certified in it. So, I mean, I've done phase one and two and then, right. you know, or consult with a lot of people that have done a lot of the different new ones. Cause there's a lot of splinter ones now. Yeah. Um, but it, it sounds like what you're asking is like, is there a pattern with eye movement from an LP IQs that is relevant with brain spotting? Or do you, are you saying, do people see a story when they hit the eye position? I think what I think if I were to distill that, it would be when people are holding an eye position, are they accessing a awareness and part? Or is it a part and a part? Inevitably. Is Sometimes. That a like part space therapy can get you there. But when you're there with brain spotting, you're so deep in a lot of the time, you're losing time. Like you don't, 
like I dissociated for like 20 minutes when I mm -hmm. did the training and I was expecting nothing because EMDR didn't do anything for me. I was like, well, right. but I saw it work for some patients. So I was like, well, I'll take some of the things from this training. And it was during COVID and we were on a screen. It wasn't even a person. I was like, how could my eye know how far the thing is away? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I like felt like I just needed to move my head. Like I was in water kind of, yeah. and I was just silent. And if it takes me and not everybody goes in that deeply with processing, but if you do, mm -hmm. um, like, you usually lose time. Like, so the person thinks the session was 10 minutes and it really is. I'm like, it's at the end of the hour because it took me 10 minutes to get them to go down. So when you're really deep in, it's more about the difference with like ETT and brain spotting and EMDR is like brain spotting. Most of the processing is not in the room. You're like opening this box and throwing all this stuff from the subbrain up into the midbrain. Yeah. But like the front of the brain, hypothetically, I mean, don't, don't send me an email and say, I can't prove that I can't. Um, yeah, but like, you're, you don't even know what you're thinking about for like two days. Like oh, you don't know what it is. And you also don't really get to pick what you hit as much. Right. I like it because the processing is so much more predictable. Like with mm -hmm. EMDR, very few people do this, but it's still terrible when it happens and it's possible. With complex trauma, like sometimes somebody would come in to process like a car wreck and you do it and they feel great and then they're thanking you and whatever. Yeah. Two days later, totally decompensate. I just remembered this thing from when I was a kid. I'm totally shutting down, totally whatever. Yeah. Okay, we're going to process that. And, you know, dad did this thing. Okay. And then decompensate again. Oh, but mom was watching. I thought she was my protector. Now I'm in the, and they can't work. And, you know, like that decompensation just doesn't happen with brain spawning in that way. It's it's not that there's no decompensation. I said it's so predictable that you can, if you, it either doesn't work, you didn't, because it's like you can knock the ball over the hill and it's going to roll down or you can keep knocking the ball up the hill. If you didn't get it to pop, like if you didn't go all the way through it, just nothing happens. You, they feel kind of weird, but you didn't you didn't open it. If you open it, then they go all the way through this thing for usually two, three days. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're obsessive, if you're compulsively trying to figure out what it is, if you're smoking a lot of marijuana, if you're drinking a lot of alcohol, if you're doing anything obsessively, you're going to slow processing down, mm -hmm. you know, but it will still work. It's just don't do that because like it, it will make the bad part last longer. Um, but like your dreams are very weird. Usually they're kind of like letting you know what you're chewing on. They're kind of archetypal. They're just weird. They're not normal dreams. A lot of times there's very photo real slick moments in it. You know, that happened for me. It's happened for a lot of my patients with ETT and brain spawning or with ETT, the processing is like five, six hours mm -hmm. and it's very specific. You don't have that huge thing. Does that kind of answer your question? So saying, is it activating a part or not? I, like you can use parts work. To be like okay like i i'll use it to be like all right now map that defensive part of you like what does your spine want to do and the person's like i don't know and you're like no really listen like you're feeling this like they're big do you want to curl up into a ball well i kind of want to bend okay are you wanting to curl up into a ball like you're protecting yourself or are you covering something up like you're you don't want to be seen do you want to be invisible do you want to just train spotting like flip back into the carpet and disappear in that way do you are you tense like you're bracing for impact like you're a foot you're going to be tackled like that's all interesting information getting them to go into the experience that would be parts based and mapping this part and what it somatically is and what it ideologically what does the world around you feel like if you feel small that means everything around you must be bigger do i look bigger do i look intimidating you know do you feel smaller than the room weight do you feel lighter than the room heavier than the room you feel it doesn't it could be green you could feel green it doesn't have to make sense it could you could feel vcr static you know what what is that and and that then that lets the eye open and you go in, you know? But when you're going in, you're never like, I'm fighting the inner critic. This is what I have to... Like, it's a pretty deep brain thing. Like, generally, there's not much talking. And uh, Yeah, I think that, that's useful to kind of hear. I, I think... So, 
in different forms of parts work, right? So, uh, and this is kind of, it covers a lot of different ones. It's just a strategy. You're working with somebody and they're accessing this thing and say, okay, yeah, cool. If this were to be in the room here, where would it be? Now, in, inherently, they do gaze spotting, right? So they mm -hmm. will they will naturally yeah. do so the question I wonder, and this is a philosophical question, as it isn't, <laughs> there's no neurobiology to define it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if whenever we do that, we are looking at something that's inside of us that we've mm -hmm. projected. So if if on a on a creative construct level, yeah. we are always looking at something. Right, because you can. Um, so, thing you're saying is that how the brain works, or is that where you're looking during a specific experience? Where you're, I, I'm wondering if that's just a normal function of how the brain does this, right? So, if I, if I find a space, right, and we have the other examples working with kids, you put a little fluffy mm -hmm. thing on top of it, or, an, I mean, traditional sand tray therapy, right? They're eye gazing down and they're fixating on certain yeah. areas. These are just naturally occurring processes that are pre-existent because they're human, mm -hmm. right? So you, you're working with somebody and then they'll naturally fixate on a specific location and then they'll mm -hmm. just start. However, well, yeah, um, I mean, what is the thousand yard stare in PTSD? It's somebody looking at something that isn't there because their eyes going through this memory from the past, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, if I'm understanding your question, like, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, what David Grant would say, the brain spotting guy, is that, like, you can't know anything about how the brain works, so that's making an assumption, and you can't do that. So just get out of the way and let the patient's experience take you somewhere, which is probably, you know, right, you know, as a yeah. researcher. In my experience, if you don't have some kind of conceptualization, at least for me, like, of helping them understand what's happening, a lot of people aren't going to go anywhere. Like, there's no buy-in, and so mm -hmm. you can't really even get them to the place where they feel it and kind of understand that it's working. Um, but I think like there are times where somebody specifically looked there during a traumatic event mm -hmm. and that's, they remember their buddy got blown up or they remember whatever. Mm -hmm. But when they're looking at that spot, that memory, the visual tends to like come back in the room and they're like thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And then there's other things that I think are more about brain function. Like resource spots tend to be down here. You know, they tend to be lower mm -hmm. and you can, and there I've heard people speculate about like, well, maybe that's where kids look under their desk to self soothe or, or something like that. But for me, like it's like going back. I mean, some of what we do now is like a fusion of the ETT, the brain spotting, and the NLP IQs that we've been looking at how that works. Because if I put the glasses on right. you and I cover up, you know, your left, your right eye, so that everything's going through the right side of the brain because the left eye is connecting to the right side of the brain. Mm -hmm. Why do ninety-five percent of people have a resource spot right here? That mm -hmm. immediately, if you pull all the anxiety off and you kind of, it's not processing anything. It's not an activation spot but they're processing it, they're, they're feeling calmer. And then you go into processing, it works better, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think 98% of people saw something right here as a kid. I think that more is a brain function thing. So, I mean, that's, of course, incredibly speculative, but does that make sense that I think it's both? But I think that the memories that are related to where you were looking during an event, and that was true for me, too. I remember like looking at a spot and having memories come back from childhood and then being like, oh, Brain spotting works. That's cool. When I was just reading the book and trying to do it to myself, and then that's like the least part of the process. Like that's not very deep in at all. That's not how the process works. Um, does that answer you? I, don't, I feel like I'm talking a lot, and I don't know if I'm answering what you're asking. Yeah. No, I think that that works. I think part of mine is uh, speculative, right? And so I like how you kind of reiterated, like we can't fundamentally know what the brain does. It is useful, though. And then 
it sounds like in your own research, what you're exploring is how the eyes, which are an external part of the brain, <laughs> uh, how they affect the way that the brain works and processes things. And sometimes it's it's almost as if there's just a mechanical framework that if it's held, generates a certain kind of reflexive response. Well, it's like if you are building a computer, I'm kind of dating myself, everything system on a chip now, but like when you build a computer, the stuff that has to talk immediately has to be right next to each other. Like the, the CPU has RAM on the chip and then the right. RAM has to be right next to it and the hard drive can be farther away because the latency is less. Mm -hmm. And everything else is filtered through kind of like mid and front brain that's a sense. Smell goes pretty deep into memory, but the visual optic nerve yeah. runs directly yeah. through to the brainstem. Because you have to see something and jump when you're a lizard. I mean, that's the oldest part of the brain. Like, and you mm -hmm. can't think about it. You don't need to pontificate and, and like you just have to move. So it's right. like with with brain spotting, somebody's moving before they know why. I mean, for me, I felt like I was moving my back of my arm, but I wasn't choosing to. Like I didn't know why that was mm -hmm. happening. Um, and it was confusing. And um, like so now I'm, I'm kind of losing my train of thought of what we were talking about. Um, but like the yeah anyway i think vision and the pupil is giving you the best fastest indicator of what's happening in a client's experience yeah. you know, even if they're not aware like with ett people dissociate on certain colors when mm -hmm. that color goes black and they're like they know it's yellow but they can't see it yeah that's immediately detecting dissociation whereas normally i'm having to look do you look spacey what's your posture doing are you having trouble trying to think of thought oh every time i bring up mom this happens it would take you know, multiple sessions to detect dissociation sometimes. ETT immediately. There you go. Like with the pupil, you're able to see immediately what the brain is doing. You know, right. If, if parasympathetic is, you know, active or if sympathetic is active, you know, when your pupil is just super wide under the same lighting for no reason, every time you're in one location, something's there. Right. Yeah, and I think that's like one of the most observable if you attend to it, right, it's very clear and very descriptive um, versus a, a felt sense of a micro tremor in the iliopsoas of a human, right? Unless they have like a well-developed felt sense and ability to track that, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's very hard to like touch into the body-oriented things up front like that. So I think, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think for myself, it's definitely one that i'm kind of curious in exploring a little bit more the brain spotting generally um and then my my own self for my own benefit there's theorizing about what that looks like how that works mm -hmm. and how to engage that uh organically right i i well, know it sounds like I, you're asking how you would integrate brain spotting with the other things you're doing is that kind of what you mean um i that's what i'm looking forward to as i kind of like create a more integrative uh, sense of how the mechanics of everything works because my my favorite type of work and I, I'll kind of like <laughs> uh, speak to that is like I really love the inherent flow of how the thing how we process and how we move and are as beings so I I like when things naturally fall into a method Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, oh, and now we're here and this eye is over here. Now let's do this and these things. Mm -hmm. I really struggle to some degree applying uh, top down, like directive approaches to other people, because okay. my ultimate belief is about therapy generally. Right. It's like I don't want to have this. I, I you 
I would love for you to be able to learn how you work in such a way that you can make this happen on your own if needed. Right? You're wondering how to give people a, a lens to make this something that you could do individually? Yeah, I think that that's yeah. the ultimate thing. And whatever languaging that works with or whatever pre preamble or <laughs> psychoeducation, ultimately it's this is naturally you. You've been mm -hmm. taught not to. How do I give you, how do I help or provide the service where you can learn to heal yourself in the way that you're designed to do that without yeah. all the cultural you know inhibitions mm -hmm. or requiring a therapist even though i can definitely speak to and honor the fact that it can process much quicker and much more efficiently when mm -hmm. we have that central vagal connection and sense of safety well I, I think that like there's a ton of people who have tried to write therapy as a book you know write a modality mm -hmm. into there's a guy who did that with adlerian therapy it's something self there's a guy that did that with ifs that brought a ton of people to ifs because it's basically how you do ifs to yourself and 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 those work for the people who they work for who needs that modality but the real the benefit of having a therapist in the room with you is that i can switch between this like when i use the language of union analysis you might hear spiritual abuse or something scary to you and i use this language like you know somebody is going to be very like for example like a lot of people who are not typical therapy woo woo people are going to be very attached to ego focused language right and they're going to really want to concretely understand what's happening and they're they're not going to want to lose their sense of self and Absolutely. so when you start to explain the hero's journey as this process of like actually you know you're growing like you're appealing to the way they think anyway to help them and if you did that ego-focused language to somebody like me, I would feel like you didn't get me and weren't making room for my experience, mm -hmm. right? And a book can't do that, you know? Right. I mean, you could maybe make, you could write 50 books and then do a personality test and then modularly have it, whatever, you know, but that's not a book, right? That's, or it's an electronic book at that point. I don't know, am I misunderstanding you or is that what you're asking? No, I think that kind of hints at sort of what I'm speaking to. I don't know if a book would be the means of it, Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally, I believe that humans have the capability built in organismic self-regulation, right, to mm -hmm. to heal themselves. Um, and I think that we have a lot of um, cultural constructs that we've designed to um, stop ourselves from using our organic processes. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> so a ritual or a activity, some kind of some some process that would be self self-led. Right. And, and I think there's all sorts of things. And that's ultimately what these are designed to produce, right? They're designed to produce a means of accessing our natural way of doing that. And we do that in relationship. And I can like honor that and mm -hmm. understand the like validity of connection uh, on, a, on, a, yeah, on a very like healing level. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the other part, and this is like a personal challenge, is also like finding the not requiring or not being required mm -hmm. to you like required to be educated in a way to use my own body and natural processes to be healing right like yeah. like i have I have to go through a process of relearning how organically my thing was if well, I, you could if never you could one option would be to never forget you know to change the way that we raise children to realize that emotion is not and we're not shaming the emotion or shaming your the way that you're handling it that you need right. to feel it but you need to feel it and not let it control you you know and we don't do that so much of the time what they learn is that the feeling is bad and then they quit feeling right and and, and, I, and i think that catches so much of it because whether i'm staring into a certain location or i'm accessing a part i think this idea of being able to feel well not, yeah. not feel healthy but to feel as a very concrete skill a little whole uh, to feel yeah wholeness in all of that i think that's 
I think that that uh, hopefully that's sort of where the pendulum swings, right? It's yeah, like, but to feel whole is is not to be perfect. And mm -hmm. even if we say, oh, I know I'm not perfect, whatever, you know, we don't know that. Right. Yeah. And and that that's you know all of therapy is kind of trying to come around that. So how do you you know in a book or a ritual or a self led process? Mm -hmm. I don't know. We've been working on it for a long time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I I um, do think that you could probably train an AI to do fancier things with pupil movement, and and we've worked with a developer and some other things right now. The the problem is that a lot of those companies are struggling to figure out how to get their stuff into the mental health space, and they don't want to talk to small people like me that you don't have a giant company and whatever sure. you know? well especially um, with them. they're trying yeah. to program them to do cbt basically like the, the people well. that are met or self-led meditations and things and which is fine i mean there's maybe a role for that but i i'm really wanting somebody microsoft says that the pupil sensor that they use to do the hologram is on the hololens is a uh, biometric information so they won't give it to us you know apple nobody will talk to you I mean, we've kind of run models and played around with with different things but you know, you kind of need a lot of money to <laughs> sure <laughs> to encourage technology to help elicit uh, certain responses in human healing. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean, the, the pupil stuff. I mean, and there may be patterns that I can't detect that a computer running a lot of trials could could notice something that's more um, helpful than what we're doing, or notice subtlety that that I can't. Targeted lights of certain colors to certain locations on the retina and all that kind of cool stuff. Yeah, um, a lot of the, one of the ETT modules with the goggles um, uses light direction on the pupil. And and like it doesn't, like usually there's not that much emotion or the emotion is secondary. It's more physical. It's like yeah. it breaks these feedback loops in the way we experience pain. So you can, you can like, and it functions sort of like a stellate ganglion block in that like mm -hmm. you're not changing the medical thing, but the way the person feels the pain becomes different and the emotional assumption about it becomes different and it's instant. So if anything in ETT gets validated soon, it'll probably be the goggles because it's like the most objective thing that, I mean, when I did it, my ear was bleeding, like my eardrum had ruptured and I was like, guys, I didn't mom issues my way into this thing. It's not psychosomatic. And they were like, no, just look here. And I, like it worked. It, it wasn't yeah. a pain. I didn't take the steroid or anything. And like, I, it was like, I don't know if it really, and they would click it back to the other one and I would feel intense pain. So it's like something about, I don't know. And and he took, you know, basically thousands of articles about light direction, mostly seasonal affective disorder research, and then put them together to make the model. Most models come directly out of observation. I mean, even mm -hmm. brain spotting did that. Somebody tried something and tried it, and then they thought it was neat, and then they kept trying it. ETT is different in that you could never notice any of those things in the room with a patient. He mm -hmm. read thousands of research studies about how the brain works and then tried to make a model from that. So it's this yeah. weird outlier in that way. Yeah, and there's some really kind of cool recent evidence about memory reconsolidation stuff by using directed light. That is mm -hmm. a cool thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been really nice having you on. Um, I'm going to, one second. So if anyone, I can point to your website, the Psychology Day page in the, in the show notes.